According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the scriptures. Join me once again in Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 7, as we are looking at Melchizedek, Melchizedek the historical person, as well as Melchizedek the literary person, and Melchizedek the type of Christ the apostle and high priest of our confession. There's so much within the book of Hebrews whereby the Melchizedek doctrine should come alive for you and I today because this is our priesthood. This is who we are. Nobody here is a Levite. Nobody here believes that we can approach the holiness of God on the basis of the law, on the basis of works, on the basis of anything but the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross. And since we come in the name of Christ, then we are Melchizedek priests entering within the veil, standing before the presence of God the Father. So this, uh, this chapter is very practical and very powerful as uh, we take the time to study the details. And I'm going to open us up with a word of prayer and calling upon our Father and His faithfulness. we got some things this morning to deal with that are a little bit awkward in some respects, so I pray that we can learn as the ancient world would have it and uh, learn as it's written here in the Word of God. Shall we pray? Most gracious Heavenly Father, we do come before you this morning and thank you for truth and calling upon your faithfulness to open the eyes of our understanding and to, to teach us, Father. In particular, we have concepts this morning from this chapter that are alien, I think, to our present generation, concepts that relate to uh, our posterity, what it means to be in the loins of our forefather, if, uh, if uh, such a thing is, uh, is applicable. I pray that you would open our eyes to see what this is about that we might appreciate it for what it is and understand the doctrine that your word portrays. And so I do thank you, Father, in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. There's a lot of uh, things to consider here with respect to Levi and why it is that he's clearly inferior to Melchizedek uh, by virtue of him just not being born yet when Abraham was meeting uh, Melchizedek and Abraham paying a tithe to Melchizedek that tells you everything you need to know, that Melchizedek is greater. And so when we're observing the greatness of Melchizedek, we cannot let this uh, escape our notice. Verse 4 says, Observe how great this man was, to whom Abraham the patriarch gave a tenth of the choicest spoils. If there is somebody that you're lifting up as the greatest ever, and to the Jews that was Father Abraham, but when Abraham pays a tithe to Melchizedek, that tells you something that the one you thought was the greatest ever is honoring one greater than him. And that Melchizedek blessed Abraham. The lesser is blessed by the greater and the lesser tithes to the greater. And so these things become undeniable. Verse 7, without any dispute, the lesser is blessed by the greater. It really is without argument. And if you try to argue the alternative, you've you've got the harder burden of proof. I mean, you, if you're going to take that side in the debate, then, uh, then all of the, the evidence falls on your shoulders and you're going to struggle uh, to, uh, to make your case. And that's what the author of, uh, of Hebrews is doing here. And so last week we were talking about observe and we were talking about the greatness. And then in discussion with respect to the tithes, 
we had a marvelous contrast in verse 5 by simply reminding us that we're church age believers, not Old Testament believers, and we don't have a tithe commandment with respect to the Jewish nation, the Jewish temple, or anything in terms of the Old Testament tithe. And so that was, uh, if you missed it, that's what we were looking at in uh, verse 5. That Old Testament tithing was for the covenant people to bless their designated priesthood. And that the covenant people in the Old Testament was Israel. They remain the covenant people. They will be uh, restored to their stewardship after the church is complete. We understand that. I hope we're solid on that. That the church age started at Pentecost and it could end today. It could end at any day. There's no expiration date pre-printed because it's on an imminent basis. Any day now that trumpet can sound and the rapture of the church will take us, take all of us to glory. And so when that happens, oh that it were today, when that happens, we are out of here and the Jewish people will have their, their uh, stewardship duties restored to them. Once again, Israel will be the covenant nation that will minister to the Gentile nations around this world. And uh, that's uh, what they have to look forward to and we have to look forward to after our departure. So uh, anyway, the idea that the church is going to claim a tithing principle is just not true because our principle is so much greater. It's the principle of grace. It's the, it's the uh, opportunity to give what we want to give, not a 10% that we have to give or some kind of a legalistic mandate that we feel obligated either grudgingly or under compulsion. And so if you missed it last week, I just encourage you, uh, write these verses down, read through them, or even if you were here last week, uh, listen to it a second time, listen to it a third time, and remind yourself that the blessings of grace giving, it is a privilege to bless our designated priesthood, and our designated priesthood is us. It's the body of Christ and the ministry of the Word of God that, uh, that the Lord Jesus Christ has sent forth to, uh, to us. We want to support the ministry of the Word of God. And that's uh, the full impact there in 1 Corinthians 9, 2 Corinthians 8 uh, and 9, 1 Timothy chapter 5. Now, with respect to all this tithing then, so verse 5, those indeed of the sons of Levi who received the priest's office have commandment in the law to collect a tenth from the people, that is from their brethren, although these are descended from Abraham. They were all Jews. Every tribe was, was from Abraham. Every tribe was Jewish. But one tribe was set, set apart to be the priestly tribe and they received a tribe from all of the others even though they were Jews. You know, a person from Benjamin couldn't just say, well, I'm Abrahamic and I'm entitled and I'm a chosen person. I don't have to give this. No, you do have to give this. You are the chosen people and this is your chosen priesthood and, and, uh, and this, is, this is how it works. All right. Then to verse 6, but the one whose genealogy is not traced from them collected a tenth from Abraham and blessed the one who had the promises. Now this is a verse that I think really uh, comes down to some interesting things to stop and consider how earth shattering it was when God called Abraham from Ur of the Chaldees and set apart a chosen people to be the new covenant people. And uh, this dynamic is just hinted at here and we're left to just wonder what things must have been like in, uh, in the age of the Gentiles before there were any Jews, before Abraham was called and before Abraham had any children that uh, would be considered uh, his heirs in this promise. So one whose genealogy is not traced from them 
we have one whose genealogy is not traced from them. In other words, Melchizedek is not Levitical. Verse 5 was all about the sons of Levi, the ones who collected tribes, from, uh, collected tithes from other Jews. Well, Melchizedek is one whose genealogy is not traced from them. He's not Levitical. He's not Levitical. And pay attention to it. It jumps out at you when you realize, wait a minute, he has a genealogy? <laughs> I thought you told me in verse 3 he didn't have a genealogy. Well, how does that work? Well, we compare Scripture to Scripture. Both verses are true. We're not going to say that one is right and the other is wrong because God cannot lie. Every verse is true. And so, yes, in, in verse 6 tells us that Melchizedek had, literally had a genealogy. Of course, he had a father, he had a mother, he had a beginning of days, he had an end of life. They just weren't written down in the narrative of the Bible. They weren't written down in Genesis 14. And you remember we discussed this in verse 3 when it says, without father, without mother, without genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but made like the Son of God. Made like the Son of God. How do you make somebody like God the Son? (laughs) Okay, well, you can't literally do it, but you can literarily do it. You can make somebody like the Son of God if you write the narrative in such a way that in the, in the narrative, in the, in, the, in the text, in the literature, he now becomes the, a type of Christ. He becomes a type of God the Son. And interestingly enough, there are lots of types of Christ in the Bible, but Melchizedek is unique as a type of the God-man, a type of the God-man without beginning, without end. As it says, hence he uh, remains a priest perpetually. He remains a priest perpetually. Aaron remained a a priest until he died. And then Eliezer became high priest. Not perpetually until he died, of course. And then his son became high priest. And that wasn't perpetual either because he died. And the point is going to get made over and over again, particularly in this chapter and upcoming chapters, is that all of those Old Testament priests, they kept dying, which is why there were so many of them and why they needed a succession of high priest after high priest after high priest. Not, not so with Jesus. Jesus is not prevented from continuing by virtue of His death. In fact, it was His death and resurrection that then launched Him into His eternal ministry as the apostle and high priest of our confession. So, um, I think we can balance out verse 3 and verse 6 in this way, particularly when we notice, okay, wait a minute, He did actually have a genealogy. He just wasn't Jewish. He wasn't Levitical. He wasn't a descendant of, of Levi. Obviously, he wasn't a descendant of Levi because he was, he was uh, contemporaneous with Levi's grandfather. <laughs> and Levi hadn't been born yet. And uh, even Jacob hadn't been born yet. And even Isaac hadn't been born yet. You know, how long does this take before Levi finally comes along? Long, long after the episode between Melchizedek and Abraham. All right. Ishmael's not even alive yet. When Abraham is, is, meeting, uh, is meeting Melchizedek after the slaughter of the kings. So, Melchizedek had a genealogy. It was not a Levitical genealogy. It was a Gentile genealogy. I can prove that because Abraham has no children and a Gentile is any non-Jew. Everybody was Gentile on the planet. All right? Except for Abraham. The tithe that he collected was not a Levitical tithe. 
if you want to give it a label, the text here doesn't give it a label, but I mean, I like it. Give it a label. It was a Gentile king priest of El Elyon, tithe. He was priest of God Most High, priest of El Elyon. And Abraham was paying him a tithe. In other words, Abraham volitionally supported the ministry of the high priest of El Elyon. This Gentile king priest, Abraham felt was worthy of his support, honored him with a tithe. Not as a Levitical tithe, it was a Gentile king priest of El Elyon tithe. And that really opens up some questions, of course, uh, some things that we might want to wonder about um, as far as this goes. And some of it will just have to leave a speculation because the Bible doesn't tell us. But there must have been some kind of a dynamic from Abraham to Noah, then after the flood, I'm, I'm sorry, from Adam to Noah, and then after the flood, during the stewardship of the Gentiles, there must have been some dynamic at work among uh, king priests that uh, all we have are little glimpses of. All right. Now Melchizedek pronounced a blessing upon the Abrahamic covenant recipient, but notice he did not receive that covenant on the basis of personal greatness. Melchizedek did not bless Abraham because Abraham deserved it because he was so great. Melchizedek was still greater than Abraham, but he blessed him and he blessed him as the recipient of the covenant promise. This is the indisputable testimony that the Melchizedek priesthood's preeminence over the Levitical priesthood. It was a greater priesthood. And yet even though he was greater, he still pronounced a blessing upon Abraham. That's extraordinary. I would remind uh, all of us here related to 1 Corinthians 1 that God does not choose who He chooses because we deserve it. He does not pick the ones that He picks out because He just can't help Himself. He looked out through the, the course of time and He looked down through the, the timeline of reality and just saw you sitting there and said, wow, I've got to save that person. And said, they just deserve it. You know why? Uh, they deserve it so much. They're so great. They're so wonderful. That's not the case. The greater blesses the lesser and the lesser doesn't deserve it. It's called grace. And so that's what we see here. 1 Corinthians 1. We taught this in a church age context, but really it applies everywhere. It applies to the angels, it applies to the Gentiles, it applies to the Jews. It's going to apply in the millennium, it's going to apply in the fullness of time. That God does not operate based upon what we earn or deserve. 1 Corinthians 1, 26-29 says, Consider your calling, brethren. There were not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble. There may be some, but it's not many. Could be a handful here and there, every once in a while, uh, uh, someone that has an earthly reputation or, or uh, fame or some kind of uh, thing like that will, uh, will be called, but that's the exception rather than the rule. It's not many. God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong. That's why I believe sometimes if you're filling out one of those internet quizzes or you've got some kind of a, a questionnaire, you know, have you ever seen those? Uh, what is my spiritual gift.com or I, I don't know. You, you go to those quizzes and, and then you, you know, sometimes they're, they're gauging personality traits or they're gauging aptitude or they're gauging uh you know something in earthly terms and that is just wrong for your spiritual gift for ministry pursuits and so forth 
very frequently God chooses the, the polar opposite so that He can manifest His power, manifest His glory, and show to the world that they may be impressed with themselves, but He's not impressed with them. The wisdom of God makes the wisdom of this world look like foolishness. And so it, it's, it's, it's curious to me, and sometimes, sometimes it's hard. Sometimes, uh, you know, there's a lot of pressure on a person. You're growing up and you love the Lord and you and, and, and there's high expectations. Uh, all the adults in the church think this, this teenager is going to be a pastor someday and they put pressure on them. Well, wait a minute. What is all this about? And so God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. It goes on, and the base things of the world and the despised God has chosen. The things that are not so that He may nullify the things that are. Now that principle carry it all the way back to Abraham and ask yourself, here's Abraham sitting there in Ur of the Chaldees with his brother, with his dad, and God reaches down and says, go forth from your land to the country that I will show you. You think God picked out Abraham because he deserved it? Because he was worthy of it? God couldn't help himself? He looked out across all the planet and said, man, Ur. <laughs> Ur, that's... Uh, They worshiped the moon god in Ur, did you know? And uh, the moon god of all things. Abraham left the moon god when he went to worship Yahweh Elohim, the Lord God of Israel, when he went to the land of promise. And it's curious to me, we're, we're seeing this in the world stage today, of course, Islam is, is opposed to the Jewish people. They're dedicated to the destruction of all the Jews. And they're serving the moon god. Allah was the moon god. In, in Muhammad's day. They still use the crescent moon as their symbol. And yet they claim to be Abrahamic. They claim to be, they claim that they're the true heirs of Abraham. They claim that Ishmael was the son that Isaac, that instead of Isaac, that Abraham had the knife ready to kill Ishmael instead of having the knife ready to kill Isaac. They change all the Old Testament stories to try to glorify Ishmael, the Arab, and uh, <laughs> they claim to be Abrahamic and yet, when you stop them and say, well, what about this? Abraham left the moon god. Well, why are you guys still following Allah, the moon god? What's up with that? You claim to be a follower of, of, of Yahweh Elohim? And, of course, they won't go there. But Abraham was not chosen. So when I come back here to Hebrews 7, and we see without any dispute, the lesser is blessed by the greater, that Melchizedek blessed the one who had the promises. Melchizedek blessed the one who had the promises. Melchizedek did not receive the promises. Melchizedek's a Gentile king priest, but he's not the uh, recipient of the Abrahamic covenant. That's Abraham. And uh, so Abraham was not chosen because he was so great. Melchizedek was greater, but Abraham was chosen. That's the point. It's the indisputable testimony. And so here's Melchizedek now passing the test that Satan failed, recognizing that he's probably the greatest, and here's somebody inferior to him that God chose instead of him. Now, if Melchizedek was satanically minded, he would pitch a fit right now. He would probably utter five I wills and demand that, uh, you know, I'll do this, I'll do that, I'll raise my throne above this. 
But see, he's a king priest of El Elyon and he has a perspective that when El Elyon reveals himself as Yahweh, Elohim, and calls Abraham and says, go forth to a land that I will show you and I will give you that land. Part of that land includes Melchizedek's land. And Melchizedek is okay with that. Melchizedek is uttering this great, I mean, it's like he must increase and I must decrease humility of John the Baptist, right? And so can you imagine? Satan couldn't pass that test. Saul couldn't pass that test. King Saul, when he was told that he was losing his kingdom and a man better than him was going to be the next king, King Saul wasn't going to stand for that. He started throwing spears at David and, and uh, you're, you're not going to make him king. This is my throne. Melchizedek blessed Abraham. There was such doctrine in that. There were such extraordinary things to consider related to what were these king priests like? What was it like? Joseph, uh, when he got sent, packed off to Egypt, he married uh, uh, the priest's daughter. Potiphar was the priest of On in Egypt, and it was that daughter that, uh, that Joseph married. And there's other Gentile priests in the Old Testament that, that uh, pre-Abrahamic priests that uh, appear by all evidence to be worshiping the one true God as we understand it. Anyway, we'll talk about this. And so with respect to how we serve and how we serve one another, and of course our commandment is to love one another, uh, the, the worst thing in the world we can do is then stop and, and evaluate greatness and say, well, they don't deserve my ministry. They don't deserve my service. Why would I help them? I'm greater than them. They should be serving me. That's, no, that's satanic pride at work. We, uh, we serve everybody, and that's the thing. And, and especially if they don't deserve it, most especially, because that then becomes the greatest picture of grace right there when we're serving the, uh, the least of these. All right, so that's the, that's the principle there. You know, from Adam to Abraham, Gentile priests functioned in their Gentile stewardship. And there's just a handful of these examples. We don't often think about it, but it is worth noting these are animal sacrifices. These are offerings. This is a priesthood at work, and it's centuries before Levi. How did they have any kind of a priesthood when they didn't even have the book of Leviticus, right? How do you have the book of Leviticus if there's no Levi? <laughs> what was this priesthood about before the Jews? Gentile priesthoods. From Adam to Abraham, Gentile priests functioned in their Gentile stewardship. I mean, right away, before Cain murdered Abel, what were they doing? Before Cain murdered Abel, what, what were they doing? These two brothers, what were they doing? They were bringing sacrifices. They were functioning as priests, right? That's what they were doing. They weren't playing Scrabble. They were, they were bringing sacrifices. And it came about in the course of time that Cain brought an offering to the Lord of the fruit of the ground. He brings an offering this is the first offering that we see other than when God killed the animals and clothed Adam and Eve in, in, uh, in skins. I think that was the first offering, but it didn't use the word offering in chapter 3. It just said that God clothed Adam and Eve in, in animal skins. But here we have the word offering. Cain brought an offering to the Lord of the fruit of the ground. Cain's not even a believer. Remember that, okay? Unbelievers can be very religious. That shouldn't shock us. And here's Cain bringing an offering to the Lord of the fruit of the ground. And he's, you know, demonstrating what he's done, because he was a farmer, demonstrating this. Abel, on his part, 
brought of the firstlings of the flock and of the fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering. We're going to read about this in Hebrews 11. It was by faith that Abel brought this offering. It was a faith offering. Why did he bring the lamb? Not because he was a shepherd, because it was by faith. The lamb is what pictured the, uh, the sacrificial blood that must be shed. It was by faith, we're told. And the Lord had regard for Abel. Why? Because Abel was better than Cain? No, because Abel brought his offering by faith. Without faith, it's impossible to please God. So Cain's offering didn't please God. There was no faith. Abel's offering pleased God because it was brought by faith. And so as for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. So Cain became very angry and his countenance fell. And the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? Why is your countenance fallen? Isn't this great? God is so faithful. He knows the answer to all these questions, but he wants them to voice those answers out loud. Like when he asked Adam, where are you, Adam? God knows where he is, but he wants Adam to admit, here I am, I'm hiding, I'm naked, I sinned. All right. He wants Cain to admit he's angry, his countenance has fallen. He's not bringing his sacrifices by faith. If you do well, will not your countenance be lifted up? If you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door and its desire is for you, but you must master it. See, these are the preliminary passages that here that speak of this, and uh, they serve as a warning for all of us today. If we're not engaged in our priesthood, if we're not walking by faith, if we're not offering up the proper sacrifices, if we're so full of ourselves that we get mad when God's not as impressed with us as we are impressed with us, then sin is crouching at the door. We will, we will fall every time. Let him who thinks he stands take heed lest you fall. If we are so carnally minded, so worldly minded, all right. Well, it means we're not operating as we should be in our priesthood. So it's curious to me, our, the first uh, priestly aspects on this, and it's evident that these are adult sons. These are adult sons. They're not little kids. They're adult sons in their own, in their own uh, generation bringing these, these sacrifices themselves. They, yeah, they already have their career. They already have their wives. They already have their uh, uh, um, everything, their priesthood. Noah in Genesis chapter 8. Noah in Genesis chapter 8. Of course, the flood is 6, 7, and 8. And uh, they get off the boat. And it's a good thing they brought those extra animals with them. You realize that they brought a, a selection of clean animals. Not to survive the flood. That was the two-by-two two thing. Okay? Male and female, right? Because that was pre transgender animal stuff. The uh, male and female, those two animals, two by two, was to survive the flood and repopulate the earth. The seven animals of the clean animals was so that they could survive the flood and then be killed on the first day after the flood, to be sacrificed on the first day after the flood. Why save them through the flood? Why feed them for a year? Why tend them in the ark? Why get off the ark and then... By the way, I think they dismantled the ark to get the firewood for the altar and the whatever else. You're not going to find the ark today. But anyway, it probably became the prime building material for their first houses and, and shelters and whatever else. <clears throat> but here's these animals. And they're gonna, they survived the flood just to get offered up the, the first day off the boat. And so um, 
Verses 20 and 21 here of chapter 8. Noah built an altar to the Lord and took of every clean animal. Wait a minute. Leviticus hasn't been written yet. What's a clean animal? What's an unclean animal? What's the standard? How do they know this? Because something else is at work during the age of the Gentiles that we don't know about today. Scripture did not start getting written until Moses. And by the time Moses is writing the Bible, they're already into uh, the, the Jewish stewardship. The first canon of Scripture was a Hebrew canon of Scripture. We don't have a Gentile, pre-Abrahamic Gentile Bible of any kind. And so clean animals. Took of every clean animal and every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. And the Lord smelled the soothing aroma and the Lord said to Himself, I will never again curse the ground on account of man. For the intent of man's heart is evil from his youth. Tell that to the uh, blank slate crowd that thinks that everybody's born with a clean slate and we're all born innocent. We're all born basically good people. And then it's only society and government and capitalism and Republicans that make people bad. Okay, We're all bad. We're all sinners in Adam. The intent of man's heart is evil from his youth. I will never again destroy every living thing as I have done. And that's what the whole rainbow is about. And that's a beautiful sign from God and his faithfulness, uh, biblically uh, identified. Anyway, so there's a priesthood. It's a Gentile priesthood, a pre-Abrahamic, pre-Levitical Gentile priesthood functioning in a Gentile stewardship. Finally, you have Job the example in the book of Job, he's offering sacrifices so much so that he even claims uh, responsibility for his adult sons and daughters. He claims responsibility for his adult sons and daughters. And this is interesting. There was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job. That man was blameless, upright, fearing God, turning away from evil. Seven sons and three daughters were born to him. And uh, his possessions are quite extraordinary there. In verse 3, 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, 500 female donkeys, very many servants. And that man was the greatest of all the men of the East. And his sons used to go and hold a feast in the house of each one on his day. So they're adult sons. They've left home. They have their own residence, their own domain. And uh, makes sense if there's seven of them. All right. Sunday, Monday, you know, take it through the week and, and there you go. Almost, no, it's not seven brides for seven brothers. These are, this is something else. All right. And so when the days uh, of feasting had completed their cycle, what is that? The seventh day. What is that? Sabbath. Sabbath. There's a concept here that Job recognizes. And so each of these are adult sons. They have their own households. There's unmarried sisters or daughters here. But then on the Sabbath basis, it's the grandfather, it's the the old man, the patriarch, if you will, that takes headship over the clan for Sabbath worship. And so he rises early and consecrates them, rising up early in the morning and offering burnt offerings according to the number of them all. For Job said, perhaps my sons have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. Thus Job did continually. So these are adult sons and maybe they've got some secret sin that they don't even know about or or Job doesn't know about or unintentional sins or things of that nature. 
And so Job offers burnt offerings. Again, what's a burnt offering? Leviticus hasn't been written yet. This is pre-Leviticus. This is pre-Levi, pre-Abraham. And so we have Gentile priests functioning in their stewardship. And so what might happen then? What might be the prophetic revelation then to these prophets, to these priests, when uh, all of a sudden God calls Abraham from Ur the Chaldees and brings him across the river. He becomes a crossover. He becomes a, 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 that's what Hebrew means, is one who crosses over. So he crosses over the river. He settles in the land of Canaan. He's now heir of a promise, living as, a, as an alien and a stranger. And it becomes a test. I believe it becomes a big voca- uh, volitional test, which Melchizedek passes with flying colors. He passes this test for the glory of El Elyon, and he worships and he praises. He's not pouting. He's not uh, sour graping it, saying, well, I deserve this covenant. He blesses the one who receives the promises. And that's extraordinary. That is a true blessing in this, uh, in this regard. I think something comparable to that would be when David's told he couldn't build the temple. And then uh, God says, it's a good idea, but your son's the one that's going to build it. You're not going to build it. Your son's going to build it. Your son who's not born yet is going to build it. And David's, okay, great. And so what does he do? He, he funds it. He pays for it. He gets the building materials together. He contracts an alliance with the king of Tyre. He does all this stuff, gets it ready to go, even though he's not allowed to build it. That's marvelous. Most of us would just uh, take our ball and go home. We'd, we'd say, fine then. You don't let me do this. I want to do this. You don't want me to do this. I won't do anything. That'll show you you know? And so I can't build a temple. I want to build a temple. You won't let me build a temple? All right. This becomes a test. And uh, we sang the hymn, ready to go, ready to stay. Well, what if you're not ready to stay because you insist that you are ready to go? Well, ready to go, ready to stay, ready to do thy will. And it becomes a huge test. And uh, we've seen Cliff, we've seen Dan, now we're praying for Lewis. We're praying for others. It's a big test. And Melchizedek had the humility to pass the test, to say, Abraham is the recipient of the promises, not me. Abraham is the one through whom all the nations of the earth will be blessed, not me. It's the Abrahamic covenant, not the Melchizedek covenant. And so Melchizedek brings bread and wine and they worship and they fellowship together over El Elyon and uh, the blessings there. Even after Abraham, <clears throat> even after Abraham, Gentile priests such as Jethro were still operational. Even after Abraham, when you get to Jethro, this is, this is 400 years later. This is in Moses' generation. So now all of a sudden we've gone, we've gone clear past Levi down to Kohath and Merari and, and Moses now. There's a Kohath and then Amram and then yeah, Amram and Jochebed were the parents of Moses. I think I've got my, I'm rusty on my genealogy. But so Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Levi, Amram, no, Kohath, Amram, Moses. That's a lot of Gentiles later, a lot of generations later. And, and Moses meets a priest, a priest of Midian, Jethro, Exodus 2. And, and this is after he'd fled Egypt. This is after um, he had chosen to identify with the people of God rather than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin. This is, you know, he could have been Pharaoh, could have been called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, but no, 
He identified with the Hebrews, and then uh, and then he had to flee for his life when uh, he was actually guilty of murder. He had murdered the taskmaster and had to flee for his life. And um, yeah, in this something. So in Exodus two, uh, Pharaoh's daughter takes him, draws him out of the water, gives him the name Moses because that means drew him out of the water. And then um, he's in, then he grows up and he sees the uh, Egyptian beating a Hebrew. So in verse 12 it says, He looked this way and that. When he saw there was no one around, he struck down the Egyptian and hit him in the sand. So, I mean, you're only in trouble if you get caught, right? It's, it's all right to... You can sin if no one sees it. But he went out the next day, and behold, two Hebrews were fighting with each other. And he said to the offender, why are you striking your companion? But he said, who made you a prince or a judge over us? Are you intending to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? Uh-oh. Didn't see. You must have seen that, huh? Then Moses was afraid and said, surely the matter has become known. So he escapes. Pharaoh heard of this matter. He tried to kill Moses, but Moses fled from the presence of Pharaoh and settled in the land of Midian. He sat down by a well. Now, isn't that coincidental? I mean, clearly this is not the best of circumstances. This is not how you want to find your call to the ministry or learn about the will of God for your life. You're guilty of murder and you're, you're fleeing as a, as a fugitive from justice. And the land you happen to flee to and the well you happen to sit down next to belong to just the man you need to learn from. The priest of Midian, the one and only, or high priest of Midian, had seven daughters, and they came to draw water and filled the troughs to uh, water their father's flock. And so not only is he going to get training for ministry, he's going to get some guidance from a, a high priest here of Midian. He's even going to marry the, uh, the daughter there. Zipporah becomes his wife. And so, um, but notice, he is the priest of Midian. He's called the priest of Midian. And again, in chapter 3, Moses was pasturing the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian. Didn't they have more than one? Now he appears to be the guy. He appears to be the, uh, the main high priest, what have you, the national priest of the Midianites. The Midianites were Abrahamic. Midianites, and from all appearances, Jethro discusses Yahweh and discusses the Lord God. <clears throat> and so... Uh, this is uh, what we see here. This is after Levi. So Israel is the steward. The Jewish people are the covenant nation. They're the steward nation. But Gentile nations can still have a Gentile priesthood that worships the Lord God. He's just not the Lord God of Midian. He's the Lord God of Israel. Okay? So how much humility does that take for a king of Salem or a king of Midian or a priest of, of, of so forth, a priest of On in Egypt? to worship the true creator God of the universe, knowing that he's the God of Israel, not the God of you. And that you've got to bless the Jewish people for God to bless you. All right, it takes a lot of humility. And even to uh, chapter 18, Exodus 18 and verse 12. Advice from your father-in-law, take it because he's a believer, he has doctrine. There's no Bible yet. 
What Bible did Jethro have? His son-in-law hadn't started writing Genesis yet. You know, I mean, Moses is the author of the Pentateuch. But who's teaching Moses? And where did Jethro get his information? By the way, I suspect Jethro is the author of Job and that, uh, and that Moses took Jethro's material and put it into the Hebrew language and it, it was added to the, to the canon. So here's Jethro, priest of Midian, Moses' father-in-law, he heard all that God had done for Moses and for Israel, his people, how the Lord had brought Israel out of Egypt. And Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, took Moses' wife Zipporah after he sent her away and her two sons. One was named Gershom. Moses said, I've been a sojourner in a foreign land. The other was named Eliezer, where he said, the God of my father was my help. The Hebrew Ezer means help. And delivered me from the sword of Pharaoh. And Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, came with his sons And it's interesting, by the time you get down here to this, here's the offerings in verse 12. Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, took a burnt offering and sacrifices for God. And Aaron came with all the elders of Israel to eat a meal with Moses' father-in-law before God. I think this is a whole other Melchizedek episode repeating itself. The fellowship that Abraham had with Melchizedek, Moses and Aaron are now having with Jethro a Gentile priest, an older man that's blessing them. And so it's interesting to me. All right. So even after Abraham, Gentile priests such as Jethro were still operational. And so to me, it's a curious thing. What happens when a stewardship ends? What happens when a stewardship is given over? When uh, the Gentiles are no longer the stewards? They don't lose their priesthoods. They don't lose their, they don't lose their salvation. They're still saved and walking in the light and doing what they're doing. It's just they're no longer stewards with stewardship responsibilities upon this earth. Not with the call of Abraham. All right. Some other things here now. Let's move on to verse 8. Hebrews 7, 8. Without any dispute, the lesser is blessed by the greater. Melchizedek was greater, but he blessed Abraham. He blessed the one who had the promises. Now, contrast between Levi and Melchizedek. Contrast between an Old Testament Levitical priesthood and ours, our priesthood in Christ. The Levitical priesthood was indisputably a dying mortal priesthood. Hebrews 7.8 says, in this case, or on the one hand, Mortal men receive tithes. But in that case, or on the other hand, one receives them of whom it is witnessed that he lives on. Of whom it is witnessed that he lives on. All right, that's what we're dealing with in verse 8. Melchizedek, without beginning of days nor end of life, as it's written into the text, Melchizedek arrives out of nowhere, they have communion together, and he disappears. We don't see his death. We don't, there's no record of his death. There's even a promise given in Psalm 110. You are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. You are a perpetual priest. How could anybody be a perpetual priest? Well, they would need eternal life, would they not? Because otherwise, they would die. Yeah. And that's the, the point being made here. That they keep dying. 
all of these priests keep dying. And that's why there's more. And, and some of this, he, uh, the author defers until you get down to verse 23. The former priests on the one hand exist in greater numbers because they were prevented by death from continuing. But Jesus, on the other hand, because He continues forever, holds His priesthood permanently, perpetually, eternally. Therefore, He's able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God. That's why we have eternal security. That's why we have eternal life. Our salvation is guaranteed because the apostle and high priest of our confession will always abide. So much truth in that. All right getting ahead of myself. That's the argument in verse 23 and following. In verse 8 though, mortal men receive tithes. Mortal men receive tithes. Isn't that interesting? When you bring an offering, you're giving it to somebody that's dying. (laughs) All right. And not only is he dying, but then the offering is dying because you're going to kill that thing together and then you're going to eat it. And, And the whole thing is a ministry of death inscribed in tablets of stones. You and I, though, have a ministry of life, and we bring living sacrifices. In fact, we are living sacrifices because Jesus Christ offered Himself once and for all, and now He ever liveth. And this is our, uh, our contrast. So mortal men receive tithes. It is self-evidently inferior. Obviously. If you're a priest, if your high priest is mortal, and he's going to die someday... That's clearly inferior to a high priest who's eternal and who, who is always seated at the Father's right hands, always guaranteeing your eternal life, always presenting himself as the provision for your sin. So it is self-evidently inferior. To what? To Jesus. Self-evidently inferior, uh, inferior to the Melchizedek priesthood. Written in such a way as to foreshadow an eternal life priesthood written in such a way as to foreshadow an eternal life priesthood that's what you and i have the melchizedek priesthood was written in such a way in other words he was introduced and he disappeared without birth without death without genealogy without father without mother made like the son of god So as the Son of God entered into this world, as the Son of God returned to the Father, here's Melchizedek. Arrives on the scene, disappears again. Never mentioned again in the Old Testament except the promise in Psalm 110. You are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. And we realize, wow, that's still a thing. (laughs) Is that still a thing? That's a thing. The Melchizedek priesthood is a thing. And as it says here in verse 8, he lives on. Melchizedek lives on. I mean, really. Think about other people that still live on in some people's imagination. Elvis still lives on. Did you know that? <laughs> know how old he'd be if he was still still alive? Yeah. My mother would say he's still alive. No, Elvis didn't die. Right? Oh, my mother loved Elvis. But think about other people that they live on. And you get sightings every now and then. Hitler is still alive. How, how old would he be? And, and all these other things, they still live on. Well, I guess in the, in the uh, captive imagination of people that, uh, that long for such things, you want it to be true. Well, think about it in terms of um, Melchizedek. The idea of Melchizedek lives on. 
in the um, Jewish imagination because it's a perpetual priesthood. And their Levitical priesthood was so mortal, it kept dying. The idea, the dream, especially when David pronounced in Psalm 110, you're a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. Wow, wait a minute. What's that going to be about? What is that? Okay, So that dream lives on. There's other dreams that live on. The dream of Rome lives on. Around the world today, the dream of Rome lives on. The idea to restore Rome is still, and it will continue till Antichrist reforges the Roman Empire. There's a dream of Rome that has never died. Other things that live on. Okay, And so Melchizedek lives on, of whom it is witness that he lives on. As soon as Psalm 110 was written, Melchizedek lives on. And there's a promise that Messiah will be a Melchizedek priest. And so that lives on. It's, a, it's an immortal priesthood. It's an immortal priesthood. Uh, introduced there in verse 8, expanded some more in verses 24 and 25, which we've already seen. Um, the former priests on the one hand exist in greater numbers because they were prevented by death from continuing. But Jesus on the other hand, because he continues forever, holds his priesthood permanently. I mean, some of those priests were great. Some of the other priests were terrible. Aaron was all right, but he led the whole golden calf thing, didn't he? And then uh, Eliezer, he was all right. Ithamar, was he okay? Eliezer had a son named Phineas. He was a hero. I love Phineas. Phineas was marvelous when he took that spear and put an end to the fornication in the middle of the act. He just got them both with one one spear stroke. That's a fun chapter to read. The um, But then there's other high priests... Eli was terrible. Eli fell off his donkey and his sons were a wreck and all this other. Eli was a wreck. There was a loser high priest for you. Ichabod. I mean, so you think about these priests that come and go and then by the time you get to Jesus, some of those priests weren't even Jewish. Some of those priests were just appointed by the Romans that said, here, you can be high priest and then they would pay bribes to become the high priest. Anyway. But Jesus holds his priesthood forever and uh, continues forever, abides forever, holds his priesthood permanently. Therefore he is able also to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. This is our high priest. Over to chapter 10 and verse 20. Our high priest abides forever. And it's not a mortal priesthood, it's an immortal priesthood. Therefore, brethren, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way. It's not just a new way, it's a new and living way. That old way was a dying way. The priests were all dying. The sacrifices were all dying. Ours is a new and living way. We have eternal life. Our sacrifices are living sacrifices. So we have confidence to enter the holy place by a new and living way which He inaugurated for us through the veil that is His flesh. We'll have more to say on that and why it is studying the life of Christ is important. The earthly ministry of Christ in His physical flesh, it's the veil. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a sincere heart and full assurance of faith, 
having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. This is, this is what our priesthood is all about. The, the Levites and the Old Testament priests, they had to be physically washed. We're spiritually washed. We're cleansed by the blood of Jesus Christ. He's our high priest. We are believer priests in this living, eternal life, Melchizedek priesthood. And let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering for He who promised is faithful. I tell you, if this doesn't get you excited about being a a believer in the church age, you know, do you want to go back to an Old Testament way of doing things? Do you want a Levitical priesthood to intercede for you? Or do you want to walk into that holy place yourself like you belong there? Because you do. We stand before the Father because Jesus Christ is our mercy seat. This is our delight in the church age. All right. Romans 12, 1. Of course, you knew this was coming up as soon as I started talking about the living sacrifice. Some people think Paul is the author of Romans and part of it is due to the similarity of doctrine and the the theology of the living sacrifice. I think that they were close associates and that's true whether it was Barnabas or Luke or Apollos or whoever we choose. Timothy was clearly connected both to Paul and the author of Hebrews. But Romans 12 says, I urge you brethren by the mercies of God to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice. You don't have to bring a goat or a bull or a ram or a turtle dove or any other thing. Nothing's going to die as we worship this morning. We are presenting ourselves as a living and holy sacrifice. We wake up and say, here I am, Lord. It's a brand new day. I'm yours, Lord. This is a new day. And I present my body, myself. And it's my body. In this fallen thing, my soul was saved. My human spirit was made alive. When I became a believer in Jesus Christ, guess what? Nothing happened to my body. The body remains the fallen element of our nature. With a living soul and a a human spirit, the body is still a body of death. Who will set me free from the body of this death? And yet it's in the body that we present the living sacrifices. It's in the body that we enter within the veil that is His flesh. All right? It's in the body. You've been bought with a price, therefore glorify God with your bodies. And so we see it here. Present your bodies to a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. It's not about singing hymns or raising your hands or hearing the music or feeling holy. It's not a it's not the ambiance or the atmosphere of, 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 of the saints. Worship is living your life as a daily sacrifice. Living your life conformed to the Word of God. You've been here this morning. You've been equipped. You've been taught. You have the Word of God. You go forth and you live it. That's your worship. And when you live your life according to biblical norms and standards instead of according to your sin nature, your flesh, the unbelieving neighbors or whatever... <laughs> When you're presenting yourself as the living sacrifice, that's what it's all about. Conducting yourself for the glory of Jesus Christ as a living sacrifice. And how do you do this? Well, by letting your mind be transformed by the Word of God. Do not be conformed to this age. It's Ion, not cosmos there. Do not be conformed to this age, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. 
And so you submit to teaching, you submit to the Word of God, you allow for the Word of God to renew you, not only here but also Ephesians 4 on the renewing of your mind, so that you may demonstrate what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. Right there, okay? That's our living sacrifice. And Paul laid it out in Romans 12, and the author of Hebrews wrote it out in chapter 7, 8, 9, and 10 of the book of Hebrews. We are believer priests according to the order of Melchizedek by a new and living way which he inaugurated for us through the veil that is his flesh. And so we have this Melchizedek priesthood and it's ours, an eternal life priesthood. Now, for the tough part, I've got eight minutes. All right. So to speak. So to speak. Hebrews 9 and 10. If I may say so, there's certain idioms that when you're conveying difficult doctrine or just difficult concepts, sometimes you just find a different way to say it. And you put it in a certain way that the person listening to you might find awkward at first until they think it through. All right? And so to speak... Through Abraham, even Levi paid tithes. You see what it says there in verse 9? And so to speak, through Abraham, even Levi, who received tithes, paid tithes. Well, how did that happen? Levi wasn't even born yet. Remember, it's Abraham, Isaac, when Abraham's 100 years old. Jacob, when Isaac's 60 years old. And then Jacob collects all those women and has the 12 tribes, including Levi, okay? In fact, Levi comes third. Levi, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, the third child to Leah, his right woman. So those are the generations. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Levi. Some century after Abraham meets Melchizedek here in this worship. And Abraham paid a tithe to Melchizedek while Levi was in his loins. Levi was in the loins of Jacob, who was in the loins of Isaac, who was in the loins of Abraham. Now, does that seem weird? Does that, do we struggle with that? Okay. The idea that somebody is accounted as having done something when they're not even here yet. But their forefather is here, and their forefather is doing something. Now, this is, uh, this is kind of tough for us because we don't identify so much as in the modern world in terms of family, clan, and tribe, but that's huge in the ancient world. And the promises that God makes to Abraham are to Abraham and his seed. And so that includes all the descendants, all the tribes. That includes Levi. Okay? That's why the restrictions were very severe in their rules for marriage and their inheritance procedures and so forth. But I took it very seriously when someone was moving a boundary stone. Uh-uh. God divided that land. Don't be messing with God's inheritance and the, the land grant that he has stipulated. And so he was in the loins of his father when Melchizedek met him. And so when he introduces this so-to-speak idiom, 
it indicates a the- theological reality is conveyed by procreational realities. Levi was in the loins of Abraham. Procreational realities. God in His wisdom knows every generation that will ever live. He knows every generation from Adam to the end of time, including the thousand generations of the fullness of time. He knows every single one. Theologically speaking, when Abraham paid the tithe, Levi paid the tithe. Does that bother you? (laughs) Well, think about it. All of humanity was in Adam when Adam sinned. Is that a big deal? Theologically, that's the whole point of the Bible. That's the whole issue with respect to our redemption. This is how the second Adam can redeem us from the first Adam. Romans 5, verse 12, 18, 19. How do I squeeze all this in in the time remaining? Romans. Romans 5.12, remember there's the first Adam, the last Adam, the contrast of Adam with Jesus throughout this chapter. Romans 5.12 says, Therefore, just as through one man sin entered in the world and spiritual death through sin... So spiritual death spread to all men. Why? Because all sinned. Aorist tense. Everybody sinned when Adam sinned. God was so faithful, so gracious. He said, dying you will die. And so Adam sinned. God assigned spiritual death, not just to Adam. Everybody in the loins of Adam. You sinned that day. I sinned that day. We were in the loins of Adam when Adam sinned. And so spiritual death spread to all men because all sinned. And this is why, of course, sinners beget sinners. That's what happens, that things beget after their kind. Down to verse 18, as through one transgression there resulted condemnation to all men, even so through one act of righteousness there resulted justification of life to all men. One work on the cross, one time forever. And how do you uh, redeem that? How do you take part in that? you become identified with the loins of Jesus. That is, you become children of God through faith in Jesus Christ. So which father then do you identify with? Are you in Adam or are you in Christ? In Adam all die. In Christ all are made alive. As through one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, even so through the obedience of the one the many will be made righteous. Jesus going to the cross is the only way to redeem the issue of Adamic rebellion because we're all in Adam. You have to have a second Adam to remedy the the failure of the first Adam. There's only one instance in the history of the world where a descendant is greater than his patriarch. Matthew chapter 22, only Jesus can be a descendant yet infinitely greater than his patriarch. Only Jesus can be a descendant, yet infinitely greater than his patriarch. And this was a conflict with the, with the Pharisees. I'm out of time. We'll just have to let it go. Read through Matthew 22. Read through that. He challenged them. He said, whose son is the Christ? They said, son of David. Well, then how does David call him Lord? In the Spirit, recorded by the Scriptures. How does David call him Lord? Is he his offspring, descendant, or is he his Lord? 
Both. Both. Son of David, Son of God, the preexistent God the Son, Lord Jesus Christ. It's a powerful truth. But I'm out of time. So Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for the truth of your word. Thank you for the privileges of learning these blessings. The fellowship between Abraham and Melchizedek must have been powerful. I just think of their of their faith and their love for you and the the uh, capacity they had, and uh, for them to come together on that day, Father, was was truly uh, extraordinary. And I thank you for the text of, of uh, Hebrews that spells these things out in this way. I pray that we would learn these things, digest them, process them, live them out, identify with our own priesthood, identify with our own indestructible life. What we have as eternal priests, Father, is uh, is something that the Old Testament couldn't even dream of. And yet here we have it. I pray we would appreciate the value of grace and the value of grace giving. That we'd appreciate the value of our stewardship in every function and every facet. From our prayer life, to our uh, fellowship, to our communion, to our giving, to our witnessing, to our ambassador function. Everything that we do in our Melchizedek priesthood is done in the, in the uh, filling of the Holy Spirit and the leading of your Son, the Apostle and High Priest of our Confession. So I do thank you, Father, in Jesus Christ's most precious and holy name. Amen.